we want to welcome Michael Young to the Co-Movement Gym Podcast. At age 19, Michael became one of the youngest people ever to successfully complete Green Beret training. That is no small task. Over the next six years, he learned what it takes to be accepted into one of the United States' elite and most unconventional warfare units. His Green Beret experience taught him the art of observing and surviving in the most dangerous environments on Earth. Combining the skills as a writer and a photographer, and with the encouragement of fellow veterans, Michael began his correspondent career by traveling to Iraq in December of 2004. That was the first step in his nearly 20-year journey, traveling the globe to report on world events firsthand. He has traveled to more than 80 countries, including China, India, Bhutan, and Vietnam. He is the author of three books and is America's most experienced combat correspondent. I found Michael and all his amazing work through Dr. Jordan Peterson. Michael had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Peterson that not only opened my eyes to this pressing issue of worldwide famine, but also his real world experience of having boots on the ground in over 80 countries. Michael was generous enough to give us some of his valuable time, and I hope each and every one of you take as much away from this conversation as I did. Welcome to the Co-Movement Gym Podcast, where we inspire people to move and live courageously. Folks, listen up. I want to take a brief moment and thank our podcast show sponsors, Lombardi Chiropractic, Native Path Supplements, and Redmond Life. Lombardi Chiropractic has been my personal chiropractor for 10 years and has kept my body strong and healthy. Native Path Supplements are used by numerous co-movement clients and our coaching team here at the facility. I highly recommend that you try their chocolate, collagen, peptides. I was made aware of Redmond Life by one of our trainers here at the facility. He recommended I try Relight Electrolyte Powder. This supplement has dramatically improved my afternoon energy levels and overall hydration. I'd like to thank these three companies for providing outstanding service and products that make our society healthier and more resilient. Mention the Cold Movement Gym podcast when you call Lombardi Chiropractic, and not only will they treat you like family, they will provide a nice, enticing discount to all listeners. And use code COMO15, that's C-O-M-O-15, at checkout when shopping at nativepath.com or redmond.life and receive 15% off all your orders. Your support to our show sponsors assists in us paying for expenses and continuing to provide content we hope you all enjoy. Okay, and so we have Michael Yon on the today's Co-Movement Gym podcast. How you doing, Michael? Very well. I'm in Amsterdam, Holland. They don't like to call it Holland anymore. The Beast is trying to, you know, rename it to the Netherlands. So I'm in Holland. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, you know, I really want to open up the eyes of all of our listeners today to a pressing issue, one that I think many people are either not aware of or really not paying attention to. Um, but first, I want to start off with some crazy statistics. And Michael, I'm sure you've heard most of these, but for the listeners, uh, take note. 
Uh, David Beasley, head of the UN World Food Program, said in its latest analysis, shows that a record 345 million acutely hungry people are marching to the brink of starvation. It's a 25% increase from the start of 2022. The state of food security and nutrition in the world says world hunger rose in 2021 with around 2.3 billion people facing moderate or severe difficulty obtaining enough to eat. According to projections, chronic nourishment would affect nearly 670 million people by 2030. And over 50 million people from 45 countries are just one step away from starvation. In addition, a recent article by The Guardian said the global food price uh, spikes in food, uh, fuel, and fertilizers are a result of the crisis in Ukraine, threatened to push countries around the world into famine. The result will be global destabilization, starvation, and mass migration on an unprecedented scale. We have to act today to avert this looming catastrophe. There are riots and mass conflicts regarding agricultural and supply chain issues throughout the world from the Netherlands to India and beyond. So Mike, I wanna start off today with what in the hell is going on out there? Well, as you know, I'm in the Netherlands now. I came here from Mexico where I was tracking migrants. And I believe you heard me on the Jordan Peterson show. He contacted me when he saw I was here. And we did a two-hour interview. I think 90 minutes is public and 30 is behind their mm -hmm. paywall. And, uh, and so I I'm a war correspondent. I track food issues, energy issues, war, direct war issues, and migration uh, issues and other issues that are related to war such as information war. Information war is the PhD level of warfare. Mm -hmm. I've written three books on information warfare. Unfortunately, they're all in Japanese because I've spent a great deal of time trying to wake up the Japanese that they are under uh, attack, information attack, and it's going to have eventually kinetic consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to know what a country's up to or what a, a beast is up to, watch their information ground game because that is your that's their eyes. That's what they're looking at. That's what they're eyeing up, right? And they're definitely eyeing, of course, we know Taiwan. I was in Hong Kong uh, until they kicked me out in January of uh, 2020. I got kicked out of Hong Kong. I'd been there for seven months in the fighting, watching the resistance, um, you know, uh, push back against the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong. And so this is just what I do all over the world, right? Mm. And um, now, famine. I've been warning about famine since January 2020. January 2020. So what's this? Maybe 31 months now or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and if you were to, for those, uh, there's probably some people listening to this who have followed my work for years because mm -hmm. I do have millions of readers. So statistically, somebody's out there and you will know that through the years, I have not been somebody that's been warning about famine every week or, mm -hmm. or every day, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, that's just, I, I would warn maybe every three months, six months and say, hey, you know, keep, you should be prepared for the worst, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, and uh, but but there wasn't a drum beat, right? But in January of 2020, I started the drum beat. Beware of famine, right? Because when you get there's something called pan for war, pandemic, famine, war. We talked mm -hmm. about on the Jordan Peterson show. Mm -hmm. If you get a big pandemic, although we now know this was a pandemic, uh, you you will get a famine and war every time without any. There there is no. It always happens, right? Mm -hmm. It's like fire. And heat, they go together. If you get a big famine, you will get pandemic and war. If you get a big war, you'll get the other two. 
I'm not talking about some small war on a little island out in the Pacific with between two tribes, even though they'll probably get some famine there if the mm-hmm. war goes long. Uh, but but when we're talking about uh, this on a larger scale, like a European sized war, that sort of thing, uh, you will always get pandemic and famine, uh, period. In fact, I'd said that on many interviews. And finally, one of my longtime readers, she heard me and she said, you always talk about war, pandemic, famine, war, as if you made it up. And I'm like, well, I made up the word. She said, you didn't make it up. They came from the Bible. They've been talking about it for 2000 years. I look it up. I'm like, oh, she was right. They were very, the Bible is crystal clear about mm-hmm. pandemic, famine, war. They're like, it's like not even ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and it, 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 they just go together. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and this creates something called hop, human osmotic pressure, human osmotic pressure, the hop. The push and pull of migration. There's many things that push, cause push and pull of migration. We're all descended from migrants or even directly migrants for various reasons, right? And pretty much everybody alive has migrated somewhere, their family has, right? You know, uh, he, even uh, Africans migrating in different parts of Africa or whatever, right? And so, um, but the human osmotic pressure that's caused by the positive pressure of a famine or a pandemic or a war pushes you out, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the negative pressure that'll suck you in. Like they have a better economy over there. Or it's mm-hmm. just safe. Right. And so now as we go into these famines, we're going to see massive human osmotic pressure, which I'm tracking the migrants I've been doing uh, excessively uh, in Morocco and Greece. And I was in Lithuania last year, uh, tracking migration. Belarus was pushing, trying to push them into Poland tr- and success, Poland pushed the migrants back and, and Lithuania let them in. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I was, with the, I was with the Lithuanian army in Afghanistan. So they allowed me to come right in and, and go to the camps. And I spent almost a month with them. And so in full access to their military, their border patrol, their camps, their intelligence, elected officials, I had almost a month of that, right? And so, and I started warning that Russia may do something in Ukraine or in the Baltics which now we see has come to pass, actually. And some of these things, if you're actually on the ground and you're watching it closely, they're not as unpredictable as some people might think because most of us are, like, I'm busy with my world, but I might get caught off, you know, caught uh, unawares of something else, like an asteroid coming, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but in my world, since I watch it closely, I can, you know, I, you know, the Taiwan thing was, you know, obviously this has been long in the making. But let's keep going back to famine. Pandemic, famine, war. Uh, we are clearly going into global famines. We're clearly going into global famines that I've been warning about since January of 2020. And now I warn about like 10 times a day, mm-hmm. every interview that I do, everything I write almost. Uh, you know, we're clearly going into famines on a scale that has never been seen in human history. Like those statistics that you just read off are low ball, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things, most of the people you talk with, even the ones who are making these sorts of statistics, they just haven't studied famine, right? They, they, they're, they're just adding things up. When you talk with them, they're just adding things up. Well, this country, this country, and they're just adding to the spreadsheet. What they don't take into account is that war creates war, fire creates fire, famine creates famine. When you get a fam, let's say a food shortage started, the food shortage in and of itself is what can push you into famine. I will explain. As an example, let's say you have a food shortage and the prices go through the roof. Like, let's say Weimar, Germany in the early 20s, right? 1920s. And uh, 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 hyperinflation, these sorts of things, people cannot afford food, so they start stealing, naturally. 
Because if you and I are hungry and we got family to feed, we're going to steal, period. And we can say we're not going to do it, whatever. When we get hungry and we haven't eaten for 10 days, we're going to go steal, right? That's just the way it goes. I don't, I'm not going to judge people for, for, for surviving, right? Yeah. And they will start, some people will just steal because the lights went out. Those are actual thieves, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and as we know, I call those flat screen riots. Flat screen riots happen every time the lights go out. Go out. Mm-hmm. People go steal their flat screen TVs, right? Mm-hmm. But, the, but then there's the, the sorts that are caused by we need to eat. And a different part of your brain takes over, right? And um, you will start stealing from the stores. Start stealing from the warehouses, from the trucks, the ships, the, the trains, stopping trains. This happens in every famine that I've studied. Uh, you can see when I published from Iraq in 2007, I think it was, in the National Review. I put it on my locals page today. It'll be on my website soon. And I'm talking about the food shortages in Diyala province in Iraq. I was watching. So I'm there in Diyala, Iraq. The breadbasket of Iraq, a lot of food there should be. And yet they're having problems with fertilizer, <laughs> with food, I mean, with fuel uh, and with enemy action, right? And so despite having our incredible military there and we were out blistering Al-Qaeda on a regular basis, they could still cause enough problems that were causing enough disruption that water was not flowing. Uh, that uh, So you, people had to go down to the river and get water. So what happens from that cholera, right? Mm-hmm. Cholera always comes with famines. And not that they had a big famine because we kept, we did keep enough food going that you didn't see skinny people crawling around with vultures picking at their back. Mm-hmm. We didn't see that. But what we did see is a lot of people lost a lot of weight and they, and the anger increased dramatically at everybody. When you're hungry, you know, uh, you know, people, people be naturally become, this is where revolutions come from. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, finally I was on a mission that I wrote about. I just published, I, I wrote this in 2007. We literally, Petraeus sent one of the units that I was with the unit uh, and Petraeus actually told me to go. General Petraeus at the time was a commander of, of, of uh, coalition forces in Iraq. And he's like, you know, go with this unit. I went with this unit and the whole mission was to, there was a, a Shiite uh, a, a man who was in charge of this massive warehouse on the outskirts of Baghdad. He would not release the food to Sunni people. Wow. He would not do it. It was totally sectarian. We went to the warehouse. We're like, man, this warehouse is huge. It's absolutely filled with food. And the people who need it are like 30 miles away, right? Mm-hmm. He will not release it. And they couldn't come get it because his guys had a lot of guns. So we showed up with more guns, which I published. It's on there. And I was taking pictures and video at the time. And the commander was like, you know, I'm here to negotiate the release of the food, basically. And the Iraqi, the Iraqi Shiite guy's like, no, we're not going to do it. And he's like, and our commander, American commander, he's like, yes, you will release the food. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will take the food and we will take you, right? We will take that food or you will release it. You will release it and you will be a hero in everybody's eyes. And he pointed at me. This is going to be on national. This is going to be on world news. Mm-hmm. And he said, General Petraeus is watching, which he was. And, and, and everybody's, you know, are you going to release the food or not? Now, this meeting was private, but I was actually, you know, there i was they were using me as leverage also that you're gonna you're either gonna be a hero or you're gonna get arrested right (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, that's and we had a a whole battalion infantry battalion out there with striker vehicles and plenty of guns and and the u.s commander's like give us the food so he's like okay you've made me an offer cannot refuse Mm -hmm. so we drove off of the i think maybe 70 semi trucks full of food and we took it like an hour two hours away that's all so there was plenty of food but it wasn't over there, 
right? Yeah. So that's where famines generally come from. It's in, it's human action. So that's where, but we got the food released and we, you know, we made it crystal clear from then on, you, you know, we will come back, just release it of your own free will and we won't come back and take it from you, right? Yeah. Because we're not going to let people starve to death because Sunni and Shia are going to kill each other. But now imagine in a world where we weren't there to do that. Of course, our invasion uh, led to that issue to begin with, but now that we got to it, we were able to fix it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just one. I could go on and on and on. When you look at famines like the potato famine in Ireland, uh, that went on with the blight. There was other people who had the blight, right? The English had the problem with it, the Germans, the Dutch, where I'm at now. Um, but they didn't starve to death. Why? Because when the Irish had their blight, uh, the the English closed down. The, they wouldn't let us put, Americans were donating food. We were trying to send food up. This is 1840s, right? We were trying to send food over. And, and the English were like, nope, you know, this is normal. Mm-hmm. So this is what you, like, you're reading Red Famine now. Yeah. Excellent book. You'll see where food was. There were other people in Ukraine and red famines about the whole lot of more in the 1932-33. Well, and it talks about other famines as well and earlier in the 20s. But, you know, you, you, you can see where there was plenty of food. It was just here and not there. And you had enemy action from the from the communist Stalin, mm-hmm. literally starving people to death. Mao did it in China. Pol Pot did it. In, it's a long list, right? Yeah. And so we're seeing a a pattern here, right, Michael? Like we're seeing that food, control of the food controls the people like directly. And this is a repeatable pattern in history. And so in the United States, for example, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but like, you know, the USDA regulations, FDA regulations, it's making it almost impossible for local small farmers to feed the local community because they have to follow so many rules. Like 90 some percent of farmers growing crops, normally a monocultural crop, corn, soy, wheat on their farm, that food doesn't even go to the local community. So when you have a pandemic, um, famine or war, we are dramatically affected in local communities when all of our food is being exported anyways, right? So when there's any kind of supply chain issue, you would think that where I live, I'm around hundreds of acres of farmland, thousands of acres, that we wouldn't be affected by something like a pandemic. But you are because the food grown in these fields is not feeding the local community. What are your thoughts on that? You totally get it. I mean, th- I mean, that's exactly right. And so these people that keep saying, wow, I live around farmland. It's not going to happen. Hey, that's nonsense. They don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like, for instance, Henan province, not Hunan, but Henan province in China. That was like the Diala province of China. Diala province is Iraq, right? That's where I was just explaining earlier. Huge bread basket and having massive food shortages, right? And so, and fuel and, and water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it all goes collapses together. And so, but over in Henan province, red basket of China, that's where some of the worst famine was in China in Mao's famine. <laughs> that was where you should never have had any, it's the normal thing. You're reading red famine now about the Holodomor and the, the big famine, 32, 33 and, and, and Ukraine, you will see over and over and over places with a lot of food have some of the worst famine. It mm-hmm. just doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense, but it does when you learn more. Let's talk about Iraq again. I like to talk about Iraq because, first of all, I've been all over that country, and it's in my recent memory. And 
So I have good, I saw it firsthand. It has great highways, bridges, waterways, you know, Tigris and Euphrates. They have, there's, um, there's no reason why food can't get from here to there, right? It's because it's short supply chains. Everything open highways. We got air, we got route, land routes from Turkey, Syria, and, and other routes from the south, such as Kuwait, East, Iran, easy to get into there, right? I mean, lots of ways, air. We got airports all over the place, big ones, right? And we had air dominance, right? And yet we still had problems getting food places with a relatively small number of enemy. I say small. I mean, we're getting into contact every day at times. I don't know who these fools are that say war is 99% boredom. That's not the wars I've been in. You know what I mean? They were more like uh, 0% boredom. You know, it's like, mm. and, uh, but so the enemy did keep us busy, right? And they could, uh, but we mostly kept the highways open and we still had food shortage. We still had food problems. Now, I, w- I want to finish one thought that's important. Mm-hmm. How famine creates famine. How food shortages can lead to famine. That may sound like, well, of course it can, dummy. But hold on. Let's, let's follow this train of thought. I'm going somewhere with it. Food shortages can create, can, can put you into greater food shortages and famine like fire creates more fire. Because when we start stealing food, as you'll see in red famine, people start stealing from the farmers like you. So if somebody comes and starts stealing your, your cattle and whatnot, you're going to either go bankrupt or, and by the way, the government always will do price controls mm-hmm. and they will all, always, they just did it in Panama with like about 75 products, right? And you can see I'm publishing it. Soon they will do price controls and like a week later and there's price controls. Why do I know that they're going to do that? Because that's what happens every single time. Yeah. It's like, it, it's, it's amazingly predictable. Right. It's, it's like I, I grew up in Florida. There's going to be rain today in the summer. Yeah, oh, there it is again. How did you know that? Because I grew up here. Right. It's going to be rain. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like and, um, and, and likewise, there's always price controls. And then the government starts directly going to farmers as they're doing to Egypt now and saying you have to sell to the people that we tell you, you have to sell to. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they and then farmers like you start to say, well, first of all, you get robbed right when. When's the worst time to rob you? When it's time for you to go sell your stuff after you put all your inputs into it, as you know, all your investment, and now's the time for you to reap your harvest and they come and take, right? So you either go bankrupt or you're like, that's it, I'm out. I mean, you're just going to steal my stuff. Mm -hmm. So now we get into that second season. This is where the price controls or the food shortages then lead us into actual famine because next year you didn't have anything for them to steal. In fact, you're one of the hungry people. Right. So instead of being well fed and being a producer, you're either running for the hills. Two Dutch farmers told me recently they're making plans to go to some place like the United States. They were asking me where to go. Wow. Because because they some of the other farmers don't get it. But these farmers were more dialed into, you know, the ask, you know, how the aspects of the different um, dimensions of famine. And they realized that if it goes into this, they're going to be bankrupt. Right. And so they're like, well, I'm not going to let my family starve because I know I'm not going to be able to produce. Mm -hmm. So what use am I here? In fact, sometimes the best thing that you can do in a situation is to remove yourself from it, Mm -hmm. right? To you're removing your family and their hungry mouths. They have to be fed and taking them somewhere else where the food is, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's actually an act of, you know, resistance in a sense. I'm not going to be one of the ones fighting for the food, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and, and so, but so now I think I've explained sufficiently now some of the ways that famine can create famine, right? Mm. And so it just exacerbates itself. Like a fire, fire creates fire. We all know that, right? Famine, food shortages, 
can lead to famine and then because and then famine creates more famine yeah and then famine creates what war and pandemic you always get pandemic and famine you'll get cholera in all cases you'll see because you'll have water problems right and people if you know what causes cholera which we do it's a bacteria it's easy to solve if you boil your water you're not going to get cholera period right if you boil your water you're not going to get cholera period or a lot of other things you're not going to get period right uh but if you don't have the fuel to boil it or if you don't have a great filter i have a catadine right beside me here somewhere that i travel with me all over the world for the last 20 years india iraq afghanistan nepal everywhere i'm using this thing i've never had a waterborne illness right if you have a Berkey or something, I'm not advertising for them. I'm just saying I've done my homework and that's what I shouldn't even mention the name, but I'm just saying I use a Catadine and a Berkey. I make zero money for most people, right? And, but that's what I use. If you have, you, there is no reason for you to get a waterborne illness, period. Sure. If you do it, it's because you screwed up. Now, typhus, you'll get, you'll get what's called famine fevers. One of those is typhus. And you'll start to see there's outbreaks now starting in California. I track typhus. It's in my Google Net Alert. So every day, typhus outbreaks, I see them. Mm-hmm. Typhus, not there's a famine in, in California yet. There's not. Uh, there could be. Uh, it's quite real possibility at some point. Uh, you'll get relapsing fevers. You'll get these other fevers. And the onset usually starts some months after an actual famine starts. Mm-hmm. So then you have these, these uh, fleas that are you know, from the rats and the cats and these sorts of things spreading typhus to people. And, and again, a lot of these are easily treatable mm-hmm. if you, but, but keep in mind, if you're having a, an out, if you're having an outbreak of typhus and cholera problems because of a famine, you got some pretty major problems already. So mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So you might not have the people there to, and remember, normally we're the ones out saving the world from famine. Yeah. Who's going to save us, right? No, we are 911, right? And uh, 911 is busy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now uh, I, I should just let you in. I, I'll talk for hours because this is all I do seven days a week to study this in every country I go to. Right. And I'm in Holland now. I came in, I came to Holland from Mexico where I was watching, you know, Governor Abbott's over there, like Texas governor. He's like, oh, we're closing down the border bullshit. He's not. I'm watching it from the Texas side. I'm watching it from the uh, Mexico side. I just spent two weeks in Mexico right on the river. I was on the Rio Grande at the river. I got a hotel near the river in the Mexican side. And I'm out there until two, three in the morning watching people cross the wow. Rio Grande into Texas while, while Governor Abbott's like, we're sending them to Washington, D.C. on buses. I'm like, so you're just spreading them around. Once you close the border, it's right yeah. in front of me. I can close it. Sure. It's an easy border to close, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, so as we add more hungry mouths in May, 310,000 in the month of May. I don't know how many last month and in June because I've been busy over here. Uh, but in, in May, 310,000 that we know who illegally entered. That's, that doesn't include the ones that were giving out visas now like candy and, and giving out. And these are adding to the hungry mouths. Yeah. Right? Anyway, I could go on forever. But remember, famine creates food shortages can lead you into famine. Again, people will say, of course, no, not of course. There's a there's a there's a there's a rung in the ladder here. Those food shortages cause people, you know, they can't afford it, they start robbing it, and then the stores stop carrying it, the warehouses stop carrying it, the truckers stop trucking because they don't want to get beat up like Reginald Denny or, or whatever. 
and 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 the ships stop shipping, and the next thing you know, the farmers like you stop farming. Now you're in a sincere and profound famine where people are, and remember, in famines, one of the number one causes, often the number one cause of death, is not starvation; it's actual disease, right? Mm-hmm. It's actual people dying of like the famine fevers, cholera, and these sorts of things. Yeah, and they're already warning of another pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and it's, yeah. to me, right, we chose to highlight COVID-19, right, as the virus and, you know, do what we need to with global control and whatnot around that. Uh, but we're already warning people of another one to come. And so um, if that doesn't open people's eyes with the control mechanism, I don't know what does, right? They tried it with the monkeypox and that's not going as planned. Um, but, you know, from a food issue and this is i'm seeing so many trends here so two things in the 1970s we started getting our soils and farmers addicted to these inputs right high level npks um pesticides herbicides insecticides and we got it now to the point where unless you're an ordinary organic farm that doesn't use this your crops, your your GMO crops depend on these inputs, right? And so if the cost of the input goes up four times in price, which is about what it has recently um, around here, you're in major trouble from a margin standpoint on a food product that already has a tiny margin. And so the control mechanism there is is dramatic. We're seeing small farms around here go out of business left and right. Why? Price fixing, right, with the fertilizers they're controlling, and then also price fixing with milk prices, commodity prices. They could control 100% of the future of these farmers. And then to make things worse, And this reminded me of an analogy in the Red Famine book that we talked about is the the Kulaks, right? They were um, pitted against the peasants as these people are doing well and we need to share their food with everyone else that is struggling. What's going on now in the meat market with Bill Gates and whatnot saying that cows are bad for the environment? right? We need to be going towards more fake meats. We're building these narratives of us versus them to create more control from a food perspective. And it's following history left and right. Oh, brother, you're reading that book now. And and so I know your eyes are opening. And Mm -hmm. after you read Red Famine, just read another four or five books on famine. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a war correspondent, I read like crazy because history is like, you know, that's what, when I was in the military, you know, the, a lot of the senior uh, officers and NCOs are, you know, what, what history book are you reading now? And if you're not, then something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, because this is the old people know this stuff repeats itself and mm-hmm. it's true. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things on these inputs that you're talking about, this is vital. Um, let's talk about the Haber-Bosch process as an mm-hmm. example, Right. Haber-Bosch, you know, Fritz Haber was a German chemist. He came up with the Haber process roughly, what, maybe 115 years ago or so in Germany. Fritz Haber, look it up, Haber, Haber process, H-A-B-E-R. So he, we had a problem with fertilizer, nitrogen-based fertilizers. As you know, NPK you just mentioned, 
nitrogen, phosphates, and potassium, of course. And um, and so the Haber-Bosch process was for the end part, the the uh, the nitrogen, right? And so the Haber process has probably Haber-Bosch. Well, I'll explain that in a minute. Has probably opened the door for having an extra, say, four billion people on Earth. Nobody knows it's some large number of people. Mm-hmm. So what you can do is take do, doing magical chemistry processes. You can, for instance, burn uh, or combine, react uh, natural gas with just air that we're breathing out, mm-hmm. right? Because the air that we're breathing out has about 78% nitrogen, but it's into, right? So it's combined. So you have, to, anyway, bottom line is they combine it. And with that, they'll make ammonia. And then they'll make urea, urea ammonium nitrate and some other things, right? So it's like a magical process. Mm-hmm. And so Bosch came along, also a German chemist. And at this, at, at, at the, almost the same time, just after Haber came up with his process, Bosch came along and he took it industrial. He figured out a way because Haber was doing it in little test tubes, like ah, I've made ammonia, and it's a couple drops. And like, ah, it's you know, it smells bad. But you know, what's he going to do with a couple drops of ammonia? Well, Bosch came along. So now I was just off at Lud- Ludwigshafen in Germany. I was just there last week. Ludwigshafen is where the BASF plant is, which is who. Um, Bosch ended up working for it in Ludwigshafen. This is where the, that huge, there's a, look at, look at the, the BASF plant in, in Ludwigshafen, Germany. It is massive. You don't need a telescope to see that thing from space. You know, it's like massive. It's a huge plant and it's got, I think over 200 sub plants or something along those lines that make all kinds of stuff, right? Now, where am I going to with this? Ukraine war, Russia, Trump telling the Europeans, especially the Germans, I lived in Germany for four years. I'm very cognizant of the mindset here. Ich spreche Deutsch, I speak German, right? It's like I've been all over Germany. And the Germans are very intelligent people, but they seem to have this firmware that's quite suicidal, you know? Uh, for instance, getting their natural gas from Russia, right? Mm-hmm. On Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 is not even open. Nord Stream 2 is not open, but it's built. They could open it right now. Nord Stream 1, I believe today might be running at about 22%. I haven't checked today. Uh, and, and bottom line is that gas, some of it's going straight to BASF, Yara, and other facilities that make nitrogen-based fertilizers, right? You need that natural gas for nitrogen-based fertilizers, right? This is a big, big deal. This is the difference between huge numbers of people starving to death or not. But the flash bank, flash to bang is quite slow. Trump was over there warning them about four years ago. Love him or hate him. You can see him at the table. Look it up on YouTube. President Trump, natural gas, Germany, Nord Stream 1. You can see him lecturing these Europeans at the table. Why are you getting your gas from Russia? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is insane, right? And the German, you know, uh, he's just like, well, we should all cooperate together and we shall have find a way, to, you know, together. It's like, no, you won't. Right now, Germany, they're setting up warming stations as we speak because they're at, at the at the burn rate that they're doing right now and uh at the the at the input rates of natural gas they're going to run out probably in february or january and the peak of winter they're going to run out they're not even going to have so they're they're setting up warming stations so that people can go to school gymnasiums and things like that wow. so that they can all get warm together that's how serious it is but think about the long-term effects of this first of all I lived in Germany for four years. It gets really cold. Right now where I'm sitting, I'm a thousand miles from the, from the, from the Arctic Circle here in Holland. 
which is you know right next door to Germany. I, I can be in Germany in one hour, right? Uh, and and uh, I can be in Ludwigshafen in three hours, right? Uh, and where I was last week, you know, the, the, that that town Ludwigshafen is like it, you can the mood of it is bad, right? It's dirty. There's trash everywhere. People who've been to Germany before, when I in the past when I would explain Germany, I'd be like, oh, it's very clean. It's very safe. It's very I like Germany. Uh, you go back to Germany now, there's trash all over the place, mm. graffiti everywhere, like graffiti, like as bad as anywhere you see in America. It's like graffiti everywhere, right? And it doesn't feel safe at night. It's clear the economy's going down. They're setting up heating stations. They're, if you want to get wood in Germany now, you're not allowed to pick wood out of the forest yourself because, you know, of course, it's Germany. Wow. So you have to have a specialist to take your firewood. And, and most of the homes, and most of the people, of course, don't live in homes that have fireplaces anyway. So I was just in a basically a German version of a Home Depot called OBI. And OBI, they have very little wood left. The prices were through the roof. And, and, and the people that work there at OBI were like, you know, get it now. I mean, this is the last we might ever have. And there was just a little bit left. And so the Germans are collecting firewood. They're hiring private security to guard firewood now. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're telling all of Europe, there's 27 countries in the EU, the European Union, at least a dozen of them, at least 12 of them are saying we're not going to, 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 uh, to ration, as the Germans are saying, you need to ration at least 15%. Like Spain is like, no, we're not going to do it. Poland's like, no, we're not going to do it. Because why, why should Poland do it when they've got 98% of their, of their storage is filled right now? Spain is like, you didn't let us have any say so in the ukraine issue so why would we destroy our industry right so again i lived in germany for four years so you see the german spokesman like we shall just have to be more gunstig you know we'll just have to uh, you know save more with smaller shower heads i'm like listen uh-huh. there's not a big shower head in all of germany and that was back in the 80s right that already everything's like an led ugly light right yeah. everything already is Germans save, right? They don't like give you ice at the table unless you ask for it. You know what I'm saying? And that's been like that since forever, you know? And, and, and I'll take it a step further and, 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 and go out on a limb and say, most Germans have been poor most of the time since Germany was formed. Mm-hmm. Now, Germany is one of the richest countries in the world. But when you really look at the, at the, like, for instance, West Germany, or I'm sorry, East Germany, back when it was communist was 17 million people. They were poor the entire time. I was over in East Germany. Was con- every single one of them is poor except the communist leaders. And most of the Germans, have, you know, they're the kind when you rent an apartment, there's no light bulbs in there. Wow. They take all their light bulbs and everything. I mean, they're used to saving. Mm-hmm. So to say that the Germans now have to save another 15%, mm-hmm. but of course, let's not talk about the, the sacred egg about, you know, flying at 200 miles an hour down the Autobahn. Right. But I mean, that's a, that's sacred there. The, even the green people will be like, you know, we must say, but, well, you know, German, you know, going as fast as a rocket is fine on the Alphabon. You know? OK, whatever, Mr. Guy, whatever. So but the bottom line is, is there's not a lot to save that is not going to directly impact, seriously impact people. Right. So, so like they're going cold. So the Germans are going to this upcoming winter, what you're saying. And I've also read this, um, Mike, is that they're going to be freezing and starving. Yeah, they'll freeze. And, you know, it's interesting when you look at German mythology, if you want to predict what a person is likely, because we all run on these, like, there's like a firmware that's, you know, our, our, our cultural myths and whatnot. And the Germans had this Gotterdammerung myth 
you know, that's like it's and it's a and it's always starts in this cold, everybody's freezing, and then you go into a famine. It's like Germany just periodically just commits suicide, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know, and, and they're doing it again. And I, I'm looking at that from a cycle I published on it about a week or so ago, and a lot of people are like, oh yeah, you're saying the unsaid that that is just a thing that Germans do. Mm-hmm. They occasionally commit mass suicide like lemmings, right? Mm-hmm. Because it is very clear that this does not have to be. This does not have to be. This is highly avoidable. Mm-hmm. This is a child could avoid this, mm-hmm. right? And yet here we go. We're going into, when Germany falls apart, which at this rate, it will do. At this rate, Germany will collapse economically. If, if Unless some magic happens, Germany is going to collapse sometime in 2023. What's going to happen to the EU? It'll collapse, right? Mm -hmm. It will collapse because Germany is, you know, many of us have been saying for quite a long time that the pigs nation, we call them the pigs, P-I-G-S, not to be insulting, but Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, it's just, you know, the acronym is memorable. Mm -hmm. And and those are the the, the weakest countries on the economic uh, uh, fruit tree, right? Mm-hmm. And so I thought Greece would probably be the first to collapse. It looks like it might be Italy. Uh, as you know, Italy's in huge problems right now. And so we've been watching those as low fruit. When those start to drop off, you'll probably see the EU start to fall apart. But we're going to fast forward around that. And Germany has got their Nord Stream 1 down to roughly 22%, unless it's changed in the last day or two. And, and they're just going to run out, right? Wow. And which means, again, they're going to have a very cold winter. People, and which, what's going to, I keep asking Germans and engineers, what's going to happen to your water pipes? Yeah. What's going to happen to your water pipes? I mean, I don't, because nobody seems to, it's a simple question. Mm-hmm. And we all know what happens when water freezes. But mm-hmm. what's going to happen if, if literally parts of cities don't have any heating and their water pipes all crack every, I mean. Well, those, be, those buildings will be ruined because they're flood with the water, the, the plumbing will be gone and people will leave. Yeah. And then where will they go to? I keep telling the Dutch people, get ready for Germans. They're going to fill up all these hotels. Yeah. And then the, the, here in Netherlands, they've got this gas, they've got this gas, uh, uh, nat, uh, their own uh, natural resources near a place called Groningen. And Groningen is, They've got enough gas for all of Netherlands and to export. The, well, they're exporting it right now. And but the problem is, due to information war, owning in, they're not pumping out almost any gas there because mm-hmm. the, it causes a depression in the land and it's causing some homes to crack. So they consolidated these people with cracked homes and they'll put the you know they'll put the camera on that. Look at the crack in this home. So they stop they stop pumping the gas out. I mean, this is a big big deal. This is a national. This is a Information warfare, highly effective. So what's going to happen with Netherlands? Their fuel prices are already through the roof. They got farmers that are quitting farming, that are being bought out, that are being forced out, just like in the United States. And we can talk about this going back to the 30s in the United States. Mm -hmm. There's something that we need to overthrow in our own uh, own country called Wickard v. Filburn, which you may have heard of. Wickard v. Filburn is a, is a, a decision that was made back in the 30s. And it's one of it's it's a key decision that stops people like you from selling directly to people like me, right? Oh, I yeah, mean, it, yeah. Wicked Filburn, it needs to be overthrown. Mm-hmm. And they do the same thing here. They do the same thing in Germany. They do the same thing in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's basically because the government wants to be involved in everything we do. I want to buy from you. You're the farmer. I want to buy from you. I don't want to have to go somewhere else, right? I want to, I want to know it. When I, I have an office in Thailand, 
In Thailand, when this was happening in big time in 2014, you had people from Bangkok starting to get worried. They started to form relationships with directly with rice farmers, right? Because their rice farming was being destroyed, right? And this is a whole different subject. I could go on for about for hours. I have an office there, but the same thing, right? And so then we had a lot of uh, people that live, especially in Bangkok, uh, that know that they need to cut out the government. They need to go directly to the farmers and they need to be on email with each other and WeChat and all that other, not WeChat, but uh, WhatsApp they use over there a lot mm-hmm. and, 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 and buy directly from the farmers. But Wickard, Wickard v. Filburn is what, you know, from almost 100 years ago in the United States is what prevents many of us from setting up direct relationships. Right? Oh, and that's a huge, huge, I've done whole podcasts on that topic, Mike, um, and here in the United States. And it doesn't surprise me that it's in other countries. Um, there are, and it's a, we are doing this now more. It's a somewhat of a growing subculture, you know, from farmer directly to consumer, but they, the, the government has created so many layers, um, with transporting food, regulating food policies, um, fees, certifications, costs that, like I said earlier in the podcast, we can't even feed the local community when we have thousands of acres around us. And, you know, that's, I think we are, and you mentioned how Germany's creating somewhat of a, you know, a suicide dilemma for them over there. We're doing the same exact thing here in the United States. You know, our soil is addicted to drugs and those drugs are created through oil, right, and inputs um, that if the prices go through the roof, you know, the inputs go through the roof and now the food goes through the roof and we have shortages or prices go crazy. We've created such a reliance on a system that is so broken versus having pasture-raised cows on a few acres of land that you then slaughter and then you sell to your local community and the farmer makes money. It's a simple high margin gig um, and there's no middleman. But we saw this in um, also we saw this in Red Famine where the the peasants started to do this, where they started to sell within themselves, barter. You know, they had their own little inner workings. And what happened? Russians came in. And they put a hack to that whole system. And we're seeing that exact same thing now here, where the average item travels 1,500 miles to the grocery store. Why is that? There's like there's like 10 people involved in that process when there should be two. It should be the farmer and the local consumer, right? That's what Saddam Hussein did, for instance, with electricity. Mm-hmm. The, like, for instance, in Mosul Dam. Up, up in uh, up in northern Iraq, uh, you know, instead of the, the energy generated from that and some other generation facilities, instead of that going directly to the people there, that would go down to Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And then electricity that went to the people up there came from other parts of Iraq. Mm-hmm. So you got control. You got control of that line of communication, that, that supply chain, that supply line. Right. So the government wants to be in the supply. The best is for me to come to you, my neighbor, and go, hey. Josh, I, I need a, a quarter of a cow, man. How much is it? And you're like, okay, this is my, I can do this for this. Okay, when are you going to do it? I'll get my freezer cranked up, clean it out and stuff. And you'll be like, okay, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Whatever date. And I'm, we're good to go. Bang, bang, bang. We, we're not paying all this diesel and all this other stuff. That's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. The French, 
I feel bad because I've talked bad about them numerous times over the years for supporting so many small farmers in such an inefficient way. And now I see the brilliance and it's just smart. It's just, it's, it's a far smarter way to do it. It's national security. It's a national security issue that I can buy directly from you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of course, they're going to hit you with the opposite side. We can do this much more efficiently if we just have, you know, if we, if we do it uh, mono, mono uh, crops and, and uh, you know, that go for as far as the eye can see, yeah. we ship. Yeah, I get it. You can easily make an argument for that. And it actually makes sense. Mm -hmm. It makes sense, especially if you want to take over control of people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. Not to mention that these, uh, uh, you know, the single crop that, you know, like, for instance, when you get a blight, it just wipes out all yep. of that kind of potato, right? Yep. I mean, you know, it's a big deal. You yep. can genetically, we live in a world where biological terrorism is, a lot of people don't realize how sophisticated bioterrorism can be. They might look at it in terms of viruses. That's just one. There's also insects. There's also there's all kind of genetic. I mean, this is a this is a very sophisticated world bioterrorism, right? Mm -hmm. And you'll never see it coming. Like right now, there's there's plants that are hitting citrus crops around the United States. This little Chinese thing called greening. You yeah. know, these things are. Uh, you know, I know some a citrus farmer down in Texas that's having a problem with it, and they told me recently. That if they don't get their uh, pesticide on time this year, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, when we get off, I'll call them up and see how's it going with this. That their 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 citrus trees are going to die. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you just don't have it this year, but next year will be fine. No, they're dead. I've mm -hmm. been out in their groves. They got beautiful. I grew up in Florida, so I grew up around groves. I know what a good grove looks like and a bad grove looks like. You know, mm -hmm. these are beautiful groves. These are high producing trees, very healthy trees, and they could lose them in one season because they don't have the chemicals they need. So that's permanent, right? It is. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's permanent unless they choose to make some tough decisions and get back to the way nature's intended, right? The way that we run our system here. Um, you know, that system is much more resilient because it's not a monoculture. Um, you know, it's letting nature work in symbiosis with each other you know, with, with many different, you know, um, cover crops planted and different kinds of species of animals, these communities to be more resilient need to be transferring over to those kinds of systems. You know, we're doing the exact opposite. I know in this area here where the small farmers now are selling all of their land, um, in small farms to these huge mega farms and yep. the mega farms have, you know, 10,000 cows, you know, in these CAFO settings, standing in shit up to their knees. You know, they're planting hundreds of acres, thousands of acres of a monocultural crop that's just one drought away from wiping that all off, right, for that whole season. Um, but there's no, because of the policies implemented by the government, now the small farms can't afford to stay in business. But the resiliency of these large setups, um, is very, it, it, they're so fragile, right? Versus something like what we're doing and actually feeding a local community. Um, we had, there was a large, large farm up north from where we are here in central New York years ago. They had a huge manure pit break and it leaked into a major river uh -oh. and it destroyed miles and miles of that river the ecosystem, the land around it and whatnot. Um, it was just a huge catastrophe for nature. And that's because why? 
we shouldn't have huge, huge manure pits, right? Like cows and chickens and everything, they should be shitting in the field <laughs> because sure. they're being oh, rotated. Here, here, that's considered poison, man. I was out with some cherry farmers a few weeks ago, and they're like, we're not even allowed to put cow manure under our trees. That's so you sad. you think, make this up? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, because it, it puts these, and, and again, these mega farms that all the small farms are selling out to are under government stipends, incentives. They're able to follow the policies because they're getting bank loans to expand from the government, right? They're, they're at the nipple and the tip of those policies. And when we talk about committing suicide here in the US with our food system, we've arrived. And I really want more people to realize the importance of building these small cultures of food in your local community with gardens and having some cattle and maybe, you know, bartering or whatnot. There are ways around it. We won't get into it in this podcast, but um, we're digging ourselves into a grave and we're seeing it in other countries, um, but we're not resilient at all here. No, the, the global population is about to take a severe ha haircut. That much yeah. is clear. And uh, there's there's no way through this without mass death at this point. Even if we suddenly had the best leadership in the world, mm -hmm. we're going to hit the mountain. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and and you look at, you know, to, to compound on that, I wanted to mention Bill Gates, right? Buying a tremendous amount of farmland. BlackRock, yeah. the hedge fund, buying hundreds of thousands of acres of farmland. China is one of the number one largest landowners in the United States. Yeah, so, and Gates on his polio vaccine, and suddenly we got a polio outbreak. These are three examples that we're giving up control of our most precious resource to three, right? You're talking a massive hedge fund, financial hedge fund that does not have, you know, our food at their best interest. Bill Gates, we know exactly what he's up to um, in China. Those are the three big players taking, not taking, they're purchasing land here. And that scares the shit out of me. It's very serious. Keep in mind, though, everybody watching this, everybody listening or watching this is a product of a family line who have been through endless wars, endless famines, and endless pandemic. Every single one of us, our family lines have been through a lot of this all around the world. And we're still here. Mm -hmm. We are the products of survivors. That doesn't mean everybody always survives. We know that that is not the case. Uh, but we all we are the products of survivors. And if we're planning ahead, the kind of people that are listening to this podcast are clearly the kind of, especially if you've gotten this far, mm -hmm. are the kind of people that are thinking and trying to figure this out. So you know, so that we can we can avoid a catastrophe. One of the things I found, by the way, around the world. Uh, when I, as a war correspondent, I've spent more than half of my life overseas, by the way, as a war correspondent in, in the last more, uh, more than 20 years, I've spent a lot of time in so many wars. The first people I go to is farmers, farmers, farmers. I go to farmers. I want to, I, I want to talk with truckers, farmers, especially farmers, because farmers, first of all, I get along with in every single mm -hmm. country They're without exception, whether they're rich farmers or poor farmers, it doesn't matter. Whatever, I just get along with them. They have common sense. They talk in language that I understand, even if it's a foreign language. Even when I was out with Taliban farmers, I was out with Taliban farmers quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I'm like, why are we even fighting these guys? I actually like them. They're <laughs> just farmers, man. 
you know what? You know what the farmers want to talk about? Hey, I got a rain problem. Yeah. Uh, one one of one of you know one of them was telling me he had something on his leaves called yellow. It was mm-hmm. and he was trying to he said he'd been off to Pakistan. He'd been off to Iran. He was off trying to find a chemical to save his trees. And he was asking me, I'm like, I'm man, I'm just here writing about what's going on. I don't know what causes this. Mm-hmm. He's got, I'm going to lose my tree. And, um, and another one, I've, I actually published this. You can see the photos I'm talking about now. Uh, there's this guy, he was growing opium, right? He was growing poppy to, mm-hmm. to, to harvest opium. And, 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 and so I've got, and he's, he's got his fingers that are gnarled from working in the soil. He's got no fingerprints because they work in the soil so much. And he's like, Americans come at night, and this is through my interpreter. We're this is total Taliban country, and I I'm not with the U.S. Army. I'm with literally a cross-eyed guard with an AK-40. He's literally cross-eyed. He's like seventy, right? <laughs> so we're out in this, and I'm with the South African farmer and my interpreter. So it was just you know us and the farmer, and but they were letting me go around. They knew I, and uh, and and he's like the farmer's like Americans. You are American, right? And I said, yeah, I'm American. He goes, well. Um, Americans come at night with their helicopters and they drop these insects on our on our poppy. And I said, I looked at him and I photographed. I said, Can I photograph? And he holds it and, I'm thinking, and I put the photographs online, right? And uh, it's on my website. And he goes, uh, I said, I said, sir, we're not dropping those insects on your plant by helicopters. I said, we should be because you're creating opium, but we're not because we're not that smart. And he looked at me and he goes, <laughs> Yes, mm-hmm. you're not that smart. I believe you. Let's go have tea. <laughs> have tea and stuff. They're out, they get they drink so much sugar in the tea. It's crazy. But I mean, but so uh, it's, I mean, I'm, he's like, yeah, you're right. You guys wouldn't even think to do that. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, but the point is, is when I'm out with all these farmers, their problems are water. They want to talk about their new tractor. They want to talk about their family. They're, that's why I get along with all farmers and every instantly here. Like when I was over in Mexico last month and I saw the, the Dutch farmers acting up and these are highly efficient farmers. I'm like, wait a minute. Why are farmers blocking the roads? Because farmers don't have time for this nonsense. Mm-hmm. You're a farmer. You know how hard you work, right? I don't even believe you got time for this thing. Do a podcast. I mean, you know, I know you guys work hard, right? Yeah. And so and so, if the farmers are acting up and they're blocking roads, I need to go talk to them. So I got on an airplane and I flew from Mexico. Actually, I drove up to Texas, flew from Austin over here. And, and I started going out with farmers like, what's the problem? What's going on? They start telling me what's going on. I'm like, oh, man, this is what they're doing in America. Yep. This is what they're doing in Canada. Yep. This is what they're doing in Thailand when I saw it over there. It's the same yep. game plan. And they're, demoni- they're, they're demonizing the farmers, making them look like kulaks, which yep. you're reading about now on Red Famine. Yep. And, and it's the same template. Well, and they got them, they got not us, our particular farm, but they got the majority of farmers around the world addicted to the drugs. And now in in the Netherlands and other places, what are they doing? They're doing the green initiatives to then cut them off the drugs that are then uh, making these farmers go bankrupt and have to leave their land because the the soil is addicted to the drugs. But they're the ones that got them addicted to the drugs because they said we couldn't feed the world. Um, You know, your yields aren't good enough. You know, this is the new wave of doing things. And now and again, we're an organic farm, so we don't use that stuff. So, you know, I don't think we should be using it anyways. But the fact is, is that you, you it's like getting someone addicted to heroin 
And then, you know, having them on that, say, for 30 years and then coming in their bedroom in the morning and just removing that from them completely, they they would die. Right. And it's the same thing that's happening now with these new green initiatives, which I do feel we need to make better, healthy choices for the environment. For sure. I do a lot of podcasts on that. But to come in and just hack that out of their their toolbox is suicide for these farmers. Look at Sri Lanka. Uh, I was in Sri Lanka, I don't know, four or five, six years ago, maybe five or six years ago. And uh, plenty of food, mm-hmm. food galore. I mean, the, that was the last thing. It was one of the things I do immediately in a different country. Is I start talking with farmers and I start looking at food. How are the food prices? Are you happy with the food? Of course, nobody's ever happy with mm-hmm. food prices, of course. But you know what I'm saying. But, are, but is anybody going hungry here? That's No, everybody was, you know, at some level of happiness that was fine, right? Uh, but now, in 2019, they suddenly took the bait for the World Economic Forum, the globalists. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, and suddenly, Sri Lanka is a, is a failed state. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's a big, big deal. And it's coming to all over the world. It's coming to all over the world. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point, Mike. It is uh, globalization and centralization of the food system, and that's that's long term going to come to destroy us. Um, yep. And so I'm curious. I have two bigger questions here. Um, I'm curious. I want to dive into these. From all your travels, you've traveled extensively, much much more than I have. Have you ever seen um, examples of countries or cultures or groups of people that are unaffected and extremely resilient in times like this of, like you said, pandemic, pandemic, uh, famine and war. Like, are there systems in place that you've seen that are sort of holding up the middle finger to the fertilizer price increases and, you know, food supply disruptions? Is there anyone thriving out there? Yeah. For instance, recently I was down in the Darien Gap with, um, with Indians. I was out with, I go out in the Darien Gap a lot. That's that jungle area between Colombia and Panama. I've spent many months there in the last uh, year and a half, two years. I, in fact, I took two congressmen out last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Tom Tiffany was one and went 25 miles with me out into the jungle. I couldn't believe it. I mean, up on dugout canoes with the Indians or Embara Indians. So I spent a lot of time out with Embara Indians and more recently with Kuna Indians. And the Kuna Indians are actually Look up Kuna, K-U-N-A, K-U-N-A, Kuna Indian Health, and you'll see scientific studies that these Kuna Indians are incredibly healthy, and they're living out there like Tarzan, man, and they're hunting with poison darts. Mm-hmm. Kids are always, every, when I'm out in their villages, the kids are always by the rivers because they always, they live by the rivers, right? So that they swim and they bathe in the rivers like five, six times. They're always out in the rivers, man. They're river people. And so the kids are always out wallowing in the mud like pigs, like we used to do when we were kids. Mm-hmm. But they're always in the mud. Like every, I come to a new village, there's the kids in the mud again. You can just count on it. There's, there's the kids in the mud again, jumping into the river, back in the mud. Back in, <laughs> and they just roll in it like pigs. Man. And they're having the time of their life waving yep. at you. They're white teeth out of the mud. You know, and it's like, you know, smiling, climb up a giant jungle tree, jump into the river. I mean, and they're super healthy. Look up Kuna Health. Mm-hmm. They like they, they and like when I was out in this village um, two or three months ago in Darien, and um, and this one guy, he was 84 years old. He was the village leader. And this is way out, man. There's no roads within 50 miles of this place. I had to charter an airplane and take a boat and all kinds of stuff, remote airfield by the Columbia border stuff. And he's like, 
and I'm asking him about the vaccines. And he's like, uh, he pointed to me like very, you know, impolitely, like, you know, for us impolitely. He goes, don't you take that vaccine through my interpreter. He's 84 years old, walking barefoot, you know, happy village. And, 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 and I said, no, sir, I'm not going to take it. He goes, good. It's poison. When the vaccinators came to my village, I made them leave. I made them go away. And when the center front came, which is their border, Panamanian border patrol, I made them leave too. Mm-hmm. Take your guns, leave me. The Kuna are famously militant, man. They're like king of the jungle. They're, they, they, they fight out there. They kill people. They're totally, and I'm out there, a white guy alone with them, you know, and they're, and they're just like, you know, come on, let's go. And we're talking about stuff. And at one point this, so the 84 year old guy, and I'm like, how's the healthy? He's like, nobody here has this COVID mm-hmm. nonsense. And he's like, and then we're not taking their poisons. Look, look how healthy I am. And he is, man, we're walking around in the midday sun. He's 84 years old. We're out in the jungle and stuff. He's showing me all this stuff. You know, he's like, this is where we get this food. This is where we get this medicine and all this stuff. You know what I mean? He's like, yeah. You know, the kid and the kids are following us, running around, jumping on him like he's a tree, and he's eighty-four years old. And you know, and, and it's just happy people. And um, and um, and then he goes. So we're walking back to the village, which is a long way in this midday heat, but he's fine with it. He's like, this war in Ukraine is very stupid. I'm like, how do you even know about the Ukraine? Do you have a radio here? He's like, yes, of course we know. I had the same thing happen in Afghanistan all the time. You'd be out there way out, like way beyond the electrical lines, but, you know, the tree line, but it's like the electrical line. You're way beyond the tree line for electricity, right? And Afghans would be like talking about the prime minister of France or something. You know what I mean? They'd be talking about all kinds of like details and like, how do you even know this stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, and, but this guy out in the Kuna Indian guy out, out in the village, uh, he, he's like, this Ukraine war, it's very stupid. Why are they doing this? Always creating war. And, you know, they come and they bother us. We're just Kuna. We grow these things in the jungle. We want to be left alone, you know? And again, look up Kuna. You'll see these scientific studies about how healthy they'll be fine. The Kuna are going to be fine. They hunt jaguars and stuff, man. Fish, they live on the ocean, you know? And, um, but, you know, obviously most people are highly dependent on the systems that we've Mm -hmm. developed, including us, right? Um, I'm quite resilient because of just who I am and that's my lifestyle and it's a lot of it's mine. And I think you are as well because we're clearly on the same wavelength Uh, and the people that think in terms of resiliency and realizing alone, all of us are weak, but as a team, we can be quite strong. And as a tribe, we can be actually powerful. Right. So we have to form one, 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 uh, somebody I know in Texas, he said, I'm forming my tribe out of my little town that he lives in. He goes first at the church. He, he's like taking inventory of everybody's skill sets there, yep. right? Yep. Like this one old lady in his town, he said he uses his church as his launching to find other people. And he's like, he's taking this inventory, like spreadsheet. And this one old lady, she's like, lives alone. Her husband died. She's like, ah, I'm very afraid because, I, you know, what can I do? I mean, I'm not, mm-hmm. he goes, well, let's talk about what do you know how to do? Mm-hmm. You know, like, because there's nobody without skills. You raise children and grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You obviously have skills. Mm-hmm. And like one thing she knows how to do is canned food. Yeah. And he's like, okay, you're Colonel Canner now. You're the, you are in charge of canning operations, right? So we need that. And you need to train other people how to do it. And we're going to get you a bunch of jars. Or t- what do you need? So mm-hmm. tell me what you need. And like bigger pressure cooker, what do you need? And it's, so he's like, okay, you're in charge of canning. And we're yep. going to bring you the stuff and you can. It. That's yep. it. So yep. she's got a job. 
And when everybody's got jobs, we'll just make our own communities, right? And we we did that. That's so crazy. You mentioned that example. We did that. I did that when uh, we were in the midst of of COVID, um, and things were getting super weird. I created a Patriot group. I called it where I went through all of my contacts, my emails, my business relationships, everything. And I created a group of 150 people and we put into a spreadsheet skill sets. And I put them all in one email group and I I communicate with them still. Um, And we're close knit to where I feel like um, we have almost everything we would need if things got really bad all within that group of 150 people. I We put that together. That's what you need. And see, this is an old survival technique that's been done for you know many generations, centuries. Like, for instance, Germans in Germany would all get from some village in Germany and get on a boat or two and go over to Texas mm-hmm. and make a village or in Ohio or someplace. And so now you got this village that transplanted itself. And there's the, there's the the dairy guy. There's the farmer. There's the guy that knows how to, the farrier. There's everybody, the doctor. We got it all. We brought everybody over, right? And, and we have our family networks already. So they, and Chinese do this. And Germans did it all over Asia. A lot of people don't realize this. There's mm-hmm. like German, I call them anthro insula, human islands, all over Asia. And, and many of them have now come back to Germany. But for centuries, Germ- just like a village, you just pick up and move. And Chinese do that. So you'll see Chinese all over Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, Thailand, uh, now in Panama. Uh, just and they, that's why you'll see these places like Chinatown. It is Chinatown mm-hmm. because they've got what they need for their human island, right? Yeah, and and so they they keep it in house. Yeah, for sure. That's a wave of the future. I truly believe that. Um, you know, I want to get your opinion on this. When we look at food security within the U.S., let's say, over the next three to 12 months, because for a lot of people, a lot of what we're talking about is very overwhelming and it's hard for them to maybe look back 100 years and think about how that's translating today, let alone 50 years from now and whatnot. Like, But let's talk three to 12 months. What do you foresee as the best case scenario and the worst case scenario here in the U.S. when it comes to food supply and famine? Uh, I think the the chance of famine in the United States is actually significant, like even greater than 50% at this point, mm-hmm. uh, but n- slower, slower than it happens here mm-hmm. uh, for it'll, I think it'll happen in, well, first of all, Africa, of course, first in, in other parts of Asia uh, and then uh, South America, as we see mm-hmm. people flooding through the Darien Gap. There's a reason I'm out in the jungle on Darien Gap. It's not because I just like to go hang out with Indians, mm-hmm. which I do like to do because they're cool. But, um, but, but, but it's because I'm tracking migrants, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm watching the, the human osmotic pressure flows that are caused by, especially food issues in Venezuela. Now Colombia's just gone to the leftist. Uh, I see a lot of Peruvians. Anyway, skip past that. You ask a specific question. So um, I think certainly by late September, October, I, I've been predicting for quite a while now, August, this month, would be probably a month where we started to see like undeniable serious upticks in violence, mm-hmm. uh, which I think, and I, you can see I've been publishing this for quite a while. It wasn't a random reason that I picked August. But no, it is some guesswork, of course, mm-hmm. uh, because nobody knows how these things are going to play out. It's a comp, but uh, August and the hot months do tend to be when things do kick up. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a, 
I'm just following the trends on that that are historical from centuries, right? And so, and especially August tends to be a month when things will really get uh, kick up in wars. More wars are started in August, that sort of thing. But you can see farmers like you know that in, in late September, we're going to see a lot of uh, data come in on how our farming is going. Our prices are probably going to explode by yep. late September, October, yep. right? And uh, and now keep in mind, there's two major types of famine. One is like the flash to bang is real quick, like bang, bang, right? And that like that happened here in Netherlands in 1944-45, which what what they call the hunger winter, the hunger winter. And that was because the Nazis were destroying a lot of their food distribution abilities and they had a very cold winter, so they had two going on at once. So they had this famine that lasted you know, roughly about six hard months. And we were parachuting in food, but we couldn't get in enough. They were shooting our planes down and stuff. But we were, we were trying, the Swedish were trying to get food here to the Dutch people. We got some in, uh, not enough, uh, you know. And then we, obviously our grandfathers came in and just kicked the crap out of the Nazis and we liberated this country. And then we had a lot of food for them. So that was like, that was a, a, a I call it a light switch famine. Like mm-hmm. it comes and it goes. It's like quick on, quick off. But most famines are not like that. Mostly you gradually go into it. Like you'll come into some economic problem, let's say, or some other problems. And then you'll come into food shortages, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'll start to have that dynamic we talked about earlier. And then the, the food shortages build on themselves. And then you, and, and all these, it's this jungle of, of inputs that are positive feedback loops. When I say positive, I don't mean like, mm-hmm. and it's good. I mean, it increases, right? And so you have these positive feedback loops and then you end up with famine, right? And so you'll slowly go into the famine. It'll build, most famines don't last more than about two years, but some can last five, 10 years or mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. And and then you'll slowly come out of it, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that is what we're clearly going into now. Now, it's very clear that in 2023, 2024, yep. there's going to be severe global famines. Yes. That's obvious. Yep. Now, keep in mind, we we are a global marketplace now. Mm. In countries like Japan, who import 70% of their food, yep. Hawaii, 90% Hawaii, right? And all these island uh, states and, 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 and uh, territories and nations, all of them, to my knowledge, are going to have food problems. Yep. I don't know any... But Japan has a lot of resources they can trade. And you'll see like when, when the when the pandemic started, there were literally ships filled with rice that were on their way to some port and they got diverted because somebody offered them more money. So Americans, by the way, we don't have a two-tiered system on so all of us Americans are are competing against Chinese and Japanese and others who have a lot of money for our prices. For instance, that we should. We are the biggest exporter in the world for now, still. Uh, but at your reading, red famine. What does that have to do with it? Look at Ukraine. Ukraine has swimming in food even back then. Yep. And the next thing you know, they got one of the biggest famines ever, right? Yep. And, and so, uh, so it's it's not relevant in a se- in a sense, actually. And so, uh, I think um, we're going to have severe problems this year. Plus, we have the elections, and we saw what just happened. We've seen what just happened in Florida. Yeah. Uh, that I mean, basically, I mean, we're down to Gestapo type stuff going on at this point, which you yeah. can see in Red Famine. You can see this, you know, or is what I do. And, and so, I mean, this is clearly going in that direction. So we've got elections coming up. They're clearly going to try to steal the elections. This mm-hmm. clearly is going to lead to violence. Yeah. And as food shortages and energy shortages, we've got death problems, which you probably got maybe because you did. You have to have diesel. As you know, diesel is a kill shot, too, right? 
mm-hmm. we don't have diesel, that's a kill shot, just like running out of fertilizer, right? Yes. Um, it's not like everybody can live on on organic farming. If no. We can't. Some number of us can, some mm-hmm. small number. Uh, and so when when these fertilizer inputs like the potash and the and the um, or potash, depending on what accent you want to go with, or the nitrogen fertilizers that many of them depend on, of course, mm-hmm. uh, inputs such as uh, natural gas, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know. Uh, and uh, and uh, and of course the uh, the uh, the the um, the phosphates which come from places like Florida, luckily from the county I'm from, Polk County, huge yeah. phosphate mines, Morocco, Iraq, China. Uh, but I mean, but the um, but we're just not going to have enough. Period. The math doesn't add up. Musical chairs, music's going to stop. There's going to be a, a lot more people. We're not going to be just missing one chair. We're going to be missing like fifty chairs or something. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea that 150 million, I was on the Jordan Peterson show recently. And he said something like, you know, it, I think he had read something that maybe 150 million people are at risk. I said, Jordan, I, 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 I watched this. I study war. You can see my track record. There's a reason I'm on your show, right? Uh, I mean, uh, it, my track record is quite good. Uh, I don't think I, this isn't exactly what I said. You can see on, on, the, on the show. But it's not, I think it, you're going to have to shoot much higher, like a billion or more, yeah, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That are literally at risk of dying. Uh-huh. Uh, and again, because remember, famine creates famine, famine creates war, war creates famine. Both of these create pandemic, and pandemic creates both of these. And you'll come up to some, it'll just, it'll keep going up, 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 up until it reaches some point, and then it'll come back down again, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. And we're not at the peak of that by any means, what you're saying. We're not even close. No. We're on the very, we're on the very, we're, we're not even on the steep climb yet. Yeah. And the so, steep climb will happen. The steep climb will happen suddenly. Generally, the, you know, it'll start the climb at some point, the, you know, uh, it, it, I, I, I'm not sure if it will be exponential. So let's not just throw that map out there sure. willy nilly as somebody who took a lot of math. So I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but as a, uh, a physics freak when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I love physics. And so, uh, you know, it, I'm not, I don't know if the function is exponential, but it certainly it climbs and then it gets the climb gets a lot steeper. And then there's a lot of random noise out there, like, you know, the drought here. And we've yeah. got obviously droughts in California. We got Lake Mead and and yeah. uh, and, and like Powell. You know, I mean, what's this going to do? Las Vegas, what's this going to do to California? Northern mm-hmm. Mexico's got a drought. We got a drought in Italy, the Rhine River, which is very close to me here somewhere, is running dry right now, which every year they or almost every year they'll have water problems. Right now, the Rhine River, which is a hugely important river in, in Europe, runs from Switzerland through Germany and then out right by me yeah. here. And, um, and uh, you know, um, that could be shut down soon because of water levels. And right now they're already reducing the amount of cargo that they'll put on ships so that they can make it through this shallow water. Yeah. So there's all kinds of little things. Normally it's not a big deal. If we have a huge drought in Florida, not Florida, but California, uh, I'm from Florida. It's obviously a a a, a big deal, but we're not going to starve. We're just going to sure. complain about vegetable prices, but we'll get them from Mexico or someplace else. But normally, we're not under attack of the globalists who have taken over uh, governments such as in Canada and the United States, here in Netherlands, uh, in New Zealand, Australia, and long list, right? Mm-hmm. Germany. Uh, normally, we don't. We're not facing the beast, as I call it. Yeah. And so we, we clearly uh, are being sabotaged by the people that are in the cockpit. Yeah. I mean, so, that's the bottom line. 
Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. So really pinpointing a best case and worst case scenario, there's no point in that, right? Just because we're sort of on this upward trajectory, um, you know, of, of food supply issues, um, you know, upcoming famine and whatnot. And so we we see the script. It's just how bad, how bad can it get? Um, it's, it's crazy. You mentioned some of your conversations with farmers. Um, a few months ago, I was getting seed from a seed distributor here. Um, and they have a multi-generational farm also, you know, a few thousand acres. So it's a big setup for around here. And, um, she looked at me and she said, Josh, she goes, you have no idea what's coming. And I, at the time, you know, and this is two months, I've been spending quite a bit of time looking into this ever since that comment. Um, she said that seed prices are going up four times in price, right? The fertilizer price, the harvest yields are tremendously low. There's numerous farmers walking away because they can't put diesel in their tractors in that we're not this fall coming up. Our harvest season is going to be September, October, November, like it is every year here. Um, Mm -hmm. we're not going to be harvesting nearly the amount of food that we normally do. And that's just in this small area here, let alone all across the world potentially. Right. And so in the, when you look at seasons, the, the food industry is really generally a year backlog, right? So this harvest season isn't going to screw everyone over until next year. And when she said that, and this is a very, very small town, um, you know, just your normal, hardworking, everyday farmer. When she said that, I got chills. And now, now, two months later, reading this book, talking to you, listening to your chat with Jordan Peterson and a lot of other people I follow, this isn't conspiracy type stuff. And I don't want people to walk away thinking like we're just sort of guessing here. I hope by now, 90 minutes in, you're you're seeing... uh, seeing some trends, but it's time to, to open your eyes to this. Um, and you know, hunker in, I think that people need to look at themselves and their families as how can they become more resilient and who are they supporting with their dollars? Are you spending your money locally supporting farmers that care about the community? Do you have a backyard garden? Do you have some chickens? Um, because like you said, Mike, the, these famines can last six months up to five years, 10 years. So if you have some resilience in place, um, you can come out the other end much, much better. And you don't need a full-fledged farm to do reasonably well in this situation. Um, But I really want people to be aware that they can, they can be more anti-fragile as Nassim Tlaib says. Um, They can't, they can't if they put some effort in for sure. Yeah, a lot of people just have a fragile ma- mindset. It's yep. pretty amazing, you know. And, and due to my line of work and my background, I know a lot of people in the intelligence community. And believe it or not, a lot of those people have the most fragile mindsets. Not all of them. Mm-hmm. Some of them are quite resilient, but others are in complete denial. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like uh, uh, one friend, uh, career intelligence, and she's like, uh, "Well, I'm a vegetarian. I mean, it's not, I'm like." McFly, remember that movie, McFly? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, remember that? What was that movie? Back to the Future or something? Yeah. I don't remember. But, but I mean, it's like, and another one, uh, uh, a Russian, not uh, intelligence, but something else. And and she's like, oh, it's no problem. I, I'm a vegetarian, and I'll just go to the to the to the islands. I'm like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. islands? <laughs> yeah. 
okay then. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can't make up this stuff. They just, and, and then when you try to help them, then they just get angry. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I, I, but I, I have to, I have to invest my time in, in people mm-hmm. that I think it's going to help. Yeah. I mean, oh. I literally, I literally have to write them off because yep. we're down to triage. It's yep. like who, who, who sees it and who's, who doesn't see it because if they don't see it, yeah, uh, I, I can't wait. It's the same with the vaccine. I tried and tried and tried to warn people about it, and now we see these numbers that are coming through. Mm-hmm. And I was doing an interview recently, and a man was like, "He said he, I feel very bad. Like I, I tried so hard to persuade some of my family members just to wait. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not saying don't get it. Just wait. Just wait a little while, right? And they wouldn't listen, and now they've got it, and now there's been some damage and death. Mm-hmm. And he said he feels bad. I said, you shouldn't feel bad. I mean, it was just like, you tried. I've tried. Mm-hmm. And some, I was able to persuade them just to wait. Mm-hmm. And then others got it. And some have been damaged. And we we all know people that have been damaged or died from this now, right? Yep. Yep. And so there, this is a, we are clearly under attack by the globalists. It's mm-hmm. obvious. It's not conspiracy theory. In fact, the people that call this conspiracy theory now, I, I literally, I'm like, Talk to the hand. I'm finished with you. Yep. I don't have time for you. I mean, you're you're really too dense for this. We got to go with the adults. Mm-hmm. You may you may come back to me later, and I'll be love to talk with you. But at this time, I'm not going to waste time with you if you think that it's a conspiracy theory to say that Soros is behind a mm-hmm. lot of this migration because he is. Period. Mm-hmm. It's demonstrable. He says it with his mouth, right? Mm-hmm. Bill Gates is clearly behind a lot of this stuff. Says it with his mouth, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. Um, Klaus Schwab, he's clearly somebody else's puppet as well, but he's a big puppet. And, you know, this is clearly orchestrated. It's clearly, you know, there's that old saying, never ascribed to malice, that which can be, you know, ascribed to, uh, uh, to, to incompetence, right? But, you know, there's a corollary. Sometimes you should not ascribe things to malice, which are better ascribed to evil. Mm-hmm. And this is clear evil and people all use the evil word. Yeah, because there really is evil, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is clear genocide. Again, the genocide word. You can't use that word because it sounds crazy. Listen, it's clear genocide. Mm-hmm. You get it? It's clear genocide. It's clearly unfolding right in front of you, right? Mm-hmm. There was in the book that you're reading, Red Famine. You'll remember there were people that didn't see it coming. Even when it's happening, yep. they're writing letters to Stalin. They're like, if, if Stalin only knew, he would come help us mm-hmm. because Stalin had a communist cult, right? But Stalin was the one doing it. Yeah. And they're right. If you're, there's another book, that's Red Famine that we're talking about that you're reading now. There's another book called Mao's Great Famine. And in there, there's people writing letters to Mao. If Mao only knew what we would, how can Mao not know? Tens yeah. of millions of people died. And people are doing the letter, letter writing campaigns to Mao. If Mao only knew. He mm-hmm. would come and save us. No, Mao's the one killing you, right? Yeah. It's like he's, it's an intentional, deliberate genocide, methodical. You know, even while that genocide was going on in China with the, the famines, they were exporting cotton. And you're in the book you're reading now, you'll read about they're still exporting grain while people are starving, mm-hmm. right? They mm-hmm. were doing yeah. that in Ireland. I, I've read about 20 books on famine, right? And, and, and you can see in, in Ireland, they were exporting food while people were starving. There were in the book you're reading now, Red Famine. You'll see that there's people in parts of Ukraine that did not even believe there was a famine just not far from them. 
Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. seen that. And, and, and you'll see that um, similar in Ireland, when that when the Great Potato Famine, there were parts of Ireland that were just untouched, mm-hmm. that, that, like nothing ever happened, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, and then there were other parts where it was down to cannibalism. And there's cannibalism in every famine, by the way. Yeah. And people are like, I was doing this interview recently on Daily Wire, and and, and not not with Jordan, but it was separate from that. And uh, and and I don't know if they aired this part or if they're going to air it or whatever. But anyway, and the interviewer said, "What about you know the thing that you brought up about cannibalism is quite inflammatory or something like that." And I said, well, you know, New York Times and all these others have been floating this idea. But as somebody who studies war and has for years, I've read hundreds of books on war. I've spent years in wars. I've read 60 books, six, zero, five dozen books on mm-hmm. pandemic, right? And about 20 on famine, right? I, I look at what I was writing from Iraq. I was talking about the food shortages and the fuel shortages. It was happening right in front of me. I was right, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, cannibalism is a part of famine, period. It will happen. If you actually have a big famine, you will have cannibalism, period. And, and it's just a fact of life. And you have to be able to defend your family. You have to be able to defend your tribe. You can see people talking about, for instance, in the hunger venture here in Netherlands, where I'm at now, Holland. You know, one man was talking about it at the time. He's like, it doesn't matter if you have a rifle. They will come with more rifles mm-hmm. because when people are hungry, they immediately form gangs. Yeah, they, they did that. They did that in Red Famine there, where they gave right. they gave them, you know, the the permission, regardless of the current laws, to go get grain at any cost. And, that's right. And from the Ukrainians, and they did, and they starved. Oh yeah, and remember that's where the GRU and the KGB came from. If you yep. remember in the book you're reading now, if yep. you've gotten this part yet. So the, the KGB, the, you know, the, the basically CIA of the Soviet Union, right, and the GRU, which is like their military intelligence, right, uh, they formed out of that red famine because mm-hmm. in, in Stalin needed intelligence. Where are the kulaks hiding? Where are the farmers and the others hiding the food, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you hide it in your one, – one guy about a month ago sent me this – all these clever ideas of how to hide food in your house. I'm like, dude, there is no place in your house you can hide food. Oh, everybody knows about the air conditioner. Yeah, yeah. Everybody knows about the behind the couch. Yeah. Oh, under the floorboard. Dude, they're going to find it. Yeah. You know, everybody knows that you make the garden in the backyard to cover up the digging. They all get it. Yeah. And, 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 and they start paying the neighbors to watch it. So anybody that's got fire coming out of their chimney at night, guess what? You're about to get the door kicked in, right? Yeah. Uh, they're watching for people that are cooking. It's, you know, and they're going to follow you where you have it hidden in the woods and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, the, and if people don't think that's happening now, then you're blind. Um, this yeah, year yeah. alone, I think that there was in the U.S. 15 approximately food processing centers that mysteriously caught on fire. This um, month? No, not this month. I said this uh, year or in the last year. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Look that up. There is a tremendous amount of mysterious uh, fires with these processing centers uh, being burnt. Uh, yeah. And they were all right around the same. Now, there's a ton of it on YouTube, all over the Internet, um, you know, and th- they're doing it, What you know, continually to people that do not abide by these food police regulations where they're shutting down farms, taking livestock, forcing them to kill them, um, you know, burning commodity crops, 
Um, there's, it's all happening now. This isn't like we're, 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 we're thinking it's coming. It's here. You just have to look deep enough and you're not going to find it on CNN or, you know, Fox news. You're not going to really see it on the normal media. Um, but it's here. And so I I think I was actually one of the first reporting on the, uh, on the fires. I think I was either the first or one of the first I was watching that. Yeah. Why was I watching it? Because I read about pandemic, famine, war. Yeah, I do. And so in the book that you're reading now, you're going to read about a lot of fires if you haven't yet. Mm-hmm. And you read the book Red Famine, thousands of fires in China. Mm-hmm. And where do all these fires come from? Some are just random, some because there is the level X and things happen, right? But uh, other fires come from like you and I are hungry and there's food down the street. We're going to go get it. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but so let's say they have a hundred tons of grain in there and you and I and our buddies can get a ton tonight. Yep. But if we don't, if we don't cover up that we just did that, or let's say we work in the plant, yep. uh, if we don't cover up that we did it, we're going to be killed. We're going to yeah. kill our family, right? And so we burn down the rest of it. Yeah. So I mean, so that's what happens. People steal some, burn down the rest, or the plant managers and all that. They, you know, the the or the people that their numbers aren't adding up and they don't want to get caught, so they burn the plant down. Yeah. So this is another way how famine creates famine, right? Yep. Yep. No, this has been this has been great, Mike. It's it's a depressing conversation at some level, but it, at the end, it's not because I I feel that I'm hoping our yeah. work with me and you collaborating is going to open up people's eyes, help them create resilience, and education is key, right? That's why we're doing this conversation. Um, you know, I'm I'm unbelievably appreciative of your time today. I want more people to look into your work. I know you've wrote books. You have a great great website. How can people find out more about you, um, support you and your work and, and all your efforts? Uh, I'm on locals.com. Locals, like local place. Uh, locals.com. Michael Yon. My last name is Y-O-N. Yankee Oscar November. And uh, and I have a website, michaelyon.com. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm just all over the place. Getter. I'm on Getter at Michael Yon 1776. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had grandfathers fighting that war, by the way. Um, and, uh, I, I, a long time American here <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and, and current American, a lot of people, it's funny as I try, I've spent more than half of my life overseas and, and over the years, people try to make me feel bad for being American. I'm like, you know, I, I, I use the F word. I'm like, F you, I'm American. I'm not Canadian. I'm not wearing a stupid Canadian t-shirt. I love Canada. Canadians are great. Guess what? I'm not Canadian, mm-hmm. right? I'm from Florida. I'm happy that I'm from Florida. I grew up catching alligators with my hands, catching turtles with my hands and eating them. Right. And so I, you know, that's just who I am. And, uh, and, and so I'm American, but I live most of my life overseas, six years, Europe, most of the rest of the time in wars or Asia and places like that. And, uh, and so, uh, so I publish every day Mm -hmm. on locals.com. Awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely drive some traffic there. I'll put some links out there. Um, two additional books I want to put out there um, that go along with this whole conversation. Um, Everything I Want to Do is Illegal by Joel Salatin and Folks, yeah. This Ain't Normal by Joel Salatin. Those had tremendous impact on me. This is like years and years ago, like 10, 12 years ago, at least. Um, Really opened my eyes into the inner workings of how this is working here in the States. Um. And for everyone listening, you know, I want you to remember you control the food, you control the people. I want you to stay independent of the system, stay resilient and stay free. And Michael, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Josh. You know how to reach me anytime. Thanks, brother.